we are in uh, Lystra. For those of you who remember, throw those maps up and just leave them up. It would just be a great bad habit every Wednesday night just to throw those up there. So you can see where we are. We've gone, we've sailed to Cyprus. We've gone then up through Perga to Antioch in Pisidia, which is not the Antioch they started from, down to Iconium, then down to Lystra, and then tonight we're going to go to Derby, and then, well, we'll talk about it then. But anyhow, we're in Lystra right now, and Paul and Barnabas had fled there at the threat of their life, um, not out of fear, out of wisdom. Jesus said if they persecute in one place, then flee to another. You know, there's a, a mission to accomplish. So it says in verse 8 of 14, And there sat a certain man in Lystra, impotent in his feet, Dr. Luke tells us, crippled from his mother's womb, who never had walked. As a physician, he's being completely clear about the condition of this man. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving, Paul perceiving that the man had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, so everybody would hear it, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. Last week we spent a good bit of time looking at that and talking about the phenomenon of that, how creation had to take place for that to happen. And when the people saw what Paul had done, <clears throat> wrong, uh, Jesus had done it through Paul. Paul never did it. When, but the people, their perception's wrong. Obviously, they're, they're unbelievers. Look, Paul is in this environment now up in Pisidian Antioch, and he's moved on. Now he's in Lystra, where this is completely pagan territory. The other ones that's telling us he got to the, went to the synagogue. There's no synagogue here. He is amongst Gentile unbelievers that are enwrapped in the, the Roman and Greek pantheon. And uh, they see this miracle and they think Paul did it. It's telling us that's their error here. When the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in the language of Laconia, which I'm not sure if Paul knew that. It was near Tarsus enough that, that he might have known some of it. In the speech of Lyconia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter, or Zeus, the primary god, and they called Paul Mercurius Mercury, or Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. So it's an interesting circumstance. There is a, uh, a tradition in this area, this Pisidian Antioch, this Galatian area up on this plateau of a time when Jupiter and Mercurius took on human form and came down in the area. And the, the legend said that they went to a thousand homes and no one would offer them hospitality. And finally they came to this home where the husband was named Philemon and the woman Macurius, I believe. I never say it right. That's good enough for you. It's, uh, here it is, Bassia, Bossia, that's her name. And they didn't know they were gods because they were in human form, but they offered them hospitality and they brought them into their home. And then after they were there, they revealed to them that it was Jupiter in Mercury. And uh, they moved these two people to the top of a hill and they brought a flood and destroyed everybody else because of their inhospitality and the way they treated them. And then they turned their home into a temple, a big marble temple where they were worship there then in the area and then when they died this man and his wife they turned them into cypress trees which grew out in front of the temple but anyhow there's this whole legend that that goes on in this gentile area so when 
Paul and Barnabas show up and this man is healed, they're thinking, oh no, you know, the gods have come down again. They got human flesh on again. If we're not good to them, they're going to kill us with a flood again, you know. So they go tell the, the, the priest of Jupiter, are you the priest of Jupiter? Yeah. Well, you better get down there because Jupiter's down the street, you know. He's dressed like a human, but he's down there. So he comes down. Now, Zeus or Jupiter was the main god in the pantheon of really both the Greeks and the Romans. And then Mercury, Mercurius or Hermes, was always the spokesman. And he called Mercury because of the speed that he would move. And he was always the one who was the spokesman for Zeus, who would come with messages for the gods and so forth. So when this happens, Barnabas evidently is much bigger. So they think he's Jupiter. And because Paul was was speaking at some point, and particularly this crippled man, they think then he's the spokesman. He's Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, he brought oxen and garlands. When they brought an animal to sacrifice them, they'd have garlands around the animal, oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice there with the people. Now, evidently it takes uh, Paul and Barnabas a little bit to figure out what's going on because they spoke in their own native tongue so they're realizing as this starts to shape up what's going on. And in verse 14 it says, When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard, when they understood, they tore their clothes, they rent their clothes, and they ran in among the people, crying out loud, saying, Sirs, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like passions with you. And we preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities. We're here to tell you to turn away from Jupiter and Mercury. We're not here to be Jupiter and Mercury. The whole reason we're just men like you. We're not gods disguised as a big guy and a little guy. We, we came to tell you that you should turn away from these vanities to turn you from idolatry unto the living God. Now, when he goes into this, it's interesting. This is their first encounter on this missionary journey we have with a completely pagan culture. He doesn't reference the Old Testament. The, the things that he says obviously are true in the Old Testament, but he doesn't, like he would in a synagogue, refer to Isaiah or to Ezekiel or some other passages they would be familiar with. He, he, he takes a different bent. He says, we've come to turn you from the vanity, the emptiness of idolatry to the living God. He says, now he's going to tell us three things, these uh, listrins, which made heaven and earth. First of all, he's the creator. He made heaven and earth, the sea and all things that are therein. God is the one who made all of this. Um, it tells us in Romans chapter 1 that people are without excuse because God's eternal power and Godhead are manifest in the creation. They can be seen. In fact, it says that they can be known, poema, that there's a poetry. Creation doesn't just demonstrate science. It demonstrates something else. There's something of beauty. There's something of language in it. And, uh, you know, it tells us the only other place it uses that word in Ephesians chapter 2, it says we are his workmanship, poema. And there are good works for ordained that we should walk in them, that human beings, because we're image bearers, we express something of the creative genius of God. You know, Paul, um, David would tell us the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night they show knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. In other words, it's a universal, the, the creation speaks a language that anybody anywhere can hear and understand. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world, 
In them hath he set a tabernacle for the son, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices as a strong man in a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. So now Paul says to these pagans, he says, we want to turn you to the living God, which made heaven and earth. They have heard the language of the heaven and the earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. God had allowed the nations their courses. Nevertheless, in spite of all of that, he left not himself without witness in that he did good he gave us rain from heaven and the fruit, fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. And it says, with these sayings, they scarcely restrained the people that had wanted to do sacrifice to them. So they're in non-Jewish territory saying, look, this is all around you. There's, it's speaking of something greater. It's speaking of a God. It's speaking of his love, his faithfulness, his tenderness, filling our tables and our bellies. There's gladness. There's, he allowed the nations. He rules over creation. He rules over the nations. He rules over nature. And, uh, and, he's, and he's speaking this to them. You know, it, in fact, it's interesting in Romans... It tells us there that because people suppress the truth of that, they hold down the truth in unrighteousness. That there's a voice that speaks from creation. There's an order. And when man wants to violate that order, he has to suppress the testimony that's in nature about what's natural. And it says, when men do that and they refuse to yield to the testimony in their hearts, then God gives them over to a reprobate, reprobate mind and so forth. So, there, you know, always people always want to say, what about the guy on the island, right? Because they're looking for a loophole. Uh, again, God loves the guy on the island. You don't have to worry about him. Your your problem is you need to worry about your stuff, not that guy on the other. When you get to heaven or stand before the judgment seat of God, he's not going to say, what about the guy on the island? What do you think we should have done? In fact, one of our girls here on a missionary trip, uh, when she was in Uganda and they go on Lake Victoria, she went and got out to this island and she was talking to a man who never heard the word Jesus in his whole life. And she said, as I'm talking to him, I hear in the back of my mind, what about the guy on the island? And she said, I realized he sent me all around the world to talk to the guy on the island. So she said, God loves the, you know, the guy on the island. So here in creation, God speaks to unsaved nations. He speaks to unsaved people. It isn't like there's no testimony in what's going on around us. And the craziest thing is, with our technology now, the more we discover the more undeniable it is, and the more it's denied. In the code, in the DNA, there's human language. There's language there. You, you, you know, this didn't just come from matter and energy. There had to be matter, energy, and information, or this never would have happened. <clears throat> I was talking to one of our guys here about the Big Bang again. They talk about the Big Bang all the time. I said, yeah, you got a teenager? This is how the Big Bang went. We throw a hand grenade in the room, shut the door. When it explodes, the room will be all neat. It'll be set up, you know. That's how Michelangelo painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. He took all these buckets of paint, he put a hand grenade in the middle and ran, and when it exploded, it painted the picture on the ceiling, you know. So the <coughs> Big Bang makes a lot of sense. We get to Genesis. We'll talk about that more, and I'll have way more fun with that there. But there's order in creation. It's undeniable. And it's made. Look, uh, the galaxy we're in and where we are in our galaxy and our solar system sits in the Milky Way galaxy in the highest point, the, the exact distance from the center in regards to gravitational forces and from the outside to put it in the perfect place. It's not destroyed. And it happens to be 
If you have a radar telescope, it is the place where you can see the rest of the universe most easily than any other place in the universe. And God has put us there because the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The earth showeth forth his handiwork. You know, the, the testimony is all around us for anybody who would listen. And, and you can go from the radar telescope down to the electron microscope, and there's order everywhere. It's undeniable. And it's being denied more now than ever. Because if there's a creator, there's accountability. And nobody wants to hear about that in the culture we live in. But there's a difference between us and the pagans at Lystra. The pagans at Lystra had a god, just the wrong god. You know, in these ancient cultures, if you were an atheist, you were an idiot. Because everybody had a god. They may not have had the right god, but everybody had a god. Everybody knew from what was going on around them, there was something, there was deity. It's only now that we've gotten so bright, we can actually try to tell somebody there is no god, which is remarkable to me. Again, you know, you 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 can't say you're an atheist. Because that means you've been everywhere, under every pew in the sanctuary, in every trunk in the car. You've done that all over Philadelphia. Then you did it all the other cities in the country. Then you did it all around the world. You looked in every closet, every cubbyhole. Then you went out into the universe, and you did that on all the planets, all the stars. And then you went into other dimensions and looked, and you know there's no God. That's the only way you can be an atheist. Because atheists don't know. You can be an agnostic, which is... Gnosis is knowledge, put an A in front of it, is I don't know. You can say that, I don't know. That's your Greek word. It makes you feel pretty good. The Latin word's ignoramus. But you can, you can say you're an agnostic. But creation's talking to us, man. Creation's talking to us. I watched all four of our children born. When you walk away from that, you know there's a God. You know there's a God. When you see a head at each hand going like this, it's sci-fi. There's nothing like that in the world. This is, you know, it's and and this creature comes out, you know, and uh, and it all of these systems switch. Uh, all of a sudden, eyes begin to work. And, and it takes a couple of weeks for them to be able to focus because the brain has to learn what, what vertical lines are, what horizontal lines are, and, uh, you know, angled lines are because they different places in the brain. All of a sudden, the ears start to hear. They start to hear at four months in the womb, 16 weeks when they're only about this big. They start to hear things. But all of a sudden, you come out in the open. It's like turning up the volume, you know. Uh, they come out in the open, all they choke and they cough, they start to breathe air. You know, you cut the umbilical cord, which the baby would think that's impossible, I'll die. No, then all of the systems switch to internal systems. And, and it's just, it's miraculous. It's miraculous. You know, talk to doctors, what, what makes a woman go in labor? Well, if we knew that, that's a $64 million question. We know for some reason when you, if you drive down the street and they see scenery going by, sometimes that starts up the process. They, they know sometimes this happens. But there are a lot of doctors that believe that the baby in the uterus, when it's ready to be born, secretes something in its urine which signals the walls of the placenta. And within 24 hours, Neuropathways are are built that never exist so that when contractions begin, all those muscles can coordinate that normally can't coordinate to pop that baby out of there. This is just free information. (laughs) Just proving how foolish people are that say there's no creator. It's, It's remarkable. Anyhow, back to Acts. And, and he says, God's there. He, he, he's the creator of everything that's alive, and the earth and the seas. He's allowed nations to develop and walk in the way they had. He suffered it. He's allowed it. And nevertheless, he didn't leave himself without witness in all this, in that he's done good. He's given man the rain from heaven. And Jesus said he makes it to fall on the evil and on the good. 
and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness, trying to testify about the living God. And it says he could barely restrain them from doing this sacrifice. Verse 19, there came certain Jews from Antioch. Now, this is over 80 miles. You really got to want to persecute somebody if you're willing to walk 80 miles to get there. These Jews came from Antioch and from Iconium who persecuted the people, persuaded the people, I'm sorry, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. So the same crowd, this is why you have to be careful with people, the same crowd that wants to sacrifice oxen to them, the next day stones them. All right, they're not gods, kill them. You know, we thought it was Zeus and Hermes, Zeus and Mercurius, it wasn't. So the next day, there's, you know, one day they're screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And a couple of days later, they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Same crowd, uh, same thing here. Be on your toes, you know. Let this be your strength, your vertical. Horizontal, you serve people. You're not the servants of people. You're the servant of the Lord. But because you're the servant of the Lord, you serve people. But you can't derive your, your purpose in life from other people. It has to be from him. Because the same crowd that held them as gods 24 hours within 24 hours, now these Jews come that want to persecute Paul. They convince the people there. And then they, they, it says they stoned him, which tells us the Jews were at the, you know, the focal point of this. They stoned Paul. They drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. No doubt they threw him in the trash heap outside the, the, the city. So, I, you know, it's hard for us to imagine what this is like because they got around him. And they're stoning him with stones. They're not this big. They're, you know, they're big enough he can pick it up and throw them. And you can just imagine, Paul must be thinking of Stephen, because he gave the consent for Stephen. He approved of Stephen being stoned. And he's getting whacked. You know, and you, you, you do this for a while, but ultimately you can't cover up. It gets through. And he goes down. And when you go down, they don't stop. You fall to your knees. They keep stoning. You finally get down on the ground. They stone. And when they think he's dead, they take his body, throw him out of the city. Imagine what a bloody mess he was. You know, at one point he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. When he tells us in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, all the things he's been through, he says, you know, I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten with rods three times. You know, I, once I was stoned. This is the picture here. This is when it happened. It happened here at Lister. He was stoned. Um, interesting, and, and it's hard to be dogmatic about this, but there are those who feel that Paul was speaking of this circumstance when he said, it is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory, it's not that I have to, but I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such a one caught up to the third heaven. I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I can't tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, things that would be a crime to put in human language, which is not lawful for a man to utter. So a lot of scholars feel this is that circumstance. Now, most scholars agree we have about 11 years difference here. He says about 14 years ago. But when you got hit in the head with a pile of stones, it could be about 14 years ago, you know, when you're talking about 11 or 12 years later. Um, one of the important things about this scene, it, it says, Howbeit the disciples now are standing around him. So there's believers that have been following, maybe from Iconium. Now in Lystra there are believers who who listened to them and saw this man healed. It says, as the disciples stood around him, look, it just says this, he rose up. It's the same phrase that when he said to the crippled guy, stand on your feet. He stood up. He just stood up. 
And then he went back into the city. How do you discourage him? If, if I survive that stoning, I'm moving on if I get me up again. He goes back into the city again. You know, particularly if he was caught up to the third heaven and saw things there. He went back in and said, finish the job, please. You know, he's probably in one of those situations. Where he, no, don't send me back. Don't send me back. I want to stay here. You know, as soon as he gets up, he goes back in the city. Now, the important thing about this scene is there's a young man named Timothy who grew up in Lystra, whose mom and grandma are Jews and her dad's a, a Greek. And no doubt he's standing there watching all of this. And no doubt this is probably the circumstance when he's converted. Because when Paul comes back in chapter 16, they commend, the church there commends Timothy to him to be a disciple and travel with him. And in 2 Timothy, again, when Paul's signing off, he said, you know the persecutions I was in, in Iconium and Lystra and so forth. He runs that down. So there's a huge and remarkable thing taking place here that this young man is standing there watching when all of this takes place. And he went back into the city. That's remarkable to me. And it says, and the next day he departed with Barnabas. Why didn't they stone Barnabas? They only wanted to stone Mercury and not Zeus. I don't know. He departed with Barnabas to Derby. That's about 20 miles Hold on, I'll get out my government laser. Uh, you're going from Lystra down to Derby here. See it? I don't want you guys to feel left out. We are going from Lystra to Derby, down to there. Now, here's the interesting thing. When he, when he leaves Derby, you with me? The shortest route back to Antioch where they started is overland to go this way. But when he leaves Derby... He goes back to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and then back down and preaches the gospel in Athaliah. The interesting thing, well, I, I should do that for you too, right? He, he leaves here, Derby, and instead of going overland to Antioch, which would be the fastest way back, they go to Lystra where he was stoned. They go to Iconium where people chased him and persecuted him. They go back to Antioch where the Jews hated him. Back, because on their way out on the journey, their, their mission is conversion. On the way back, their mission is confirming. On the way out, they're, they're evangelizing. People are getting saved. On the way back, they're visiting these small fellowships that have been born, ministering to and confirming the believers. That was more important to Paul than going over it. And whatever, I, I feel like whatever took place in that stoning, whatever he saw, you know, you know, Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. He has this remarkable situation. We're going to get to Jerusalem ultimately. And uh, somebody gave me this great old book on the Roman legions. And there's actually part of a chapter written by a Roman soldier that was in the Antonio Fortress who talks about when they brought this guy, Paul, and how he got up and spoke Hebrew, and, and the whole scene, what took place in Roman records, really remarkable. I, I'm amazed. I'll share it with you when we get there. Hopefully the rapture will happen first, and you can ask Paul yourself. But he's going he's gonna to go to Derby now, and then he's going to make the journey back over the same path that he came. So the next day he departed with Barnabas, and they travel about 20 miles on foot, and they go down to Derby. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, and the King James says they had taught many, the Greek is they had made many disciples. Uh, Jesus said to go in all the world teaching, which is the same word, making disciples in my name, um, baptizing, teaching them to obey all things I've commanded. Here it says, when they taught many Disciples is from the Greek word learners, and you make disciples by teaching. So you make, you you convert people by preaching the gospel. Then, as you disciple them, teach them, they're discipled and they grow. Um, Don McClure always tells me the difference between an evangelist and a pastor. You see at the maternity ward in the hospital, the evangelist 
is the father giving out cigars, saying, I did that, looking through the window. I did see that. I did that. That's the evangelist. And the pastor's the mom standing there all beat up, thinking, i got to take care of this for the next 18 years. You know, uh, So they give birth to these uh, folks in these churches. And it says, and when they had preached the gospel in that city and taught many, they made disciples in Derby. Then they returned again to Lystra. Again, that's about 20 miles back. And then to Iconium. That's 40 miles from Lystra. And then to Antioch, which is at least 80 miles from Iconium. And this is all on foot. And they come to these three places where there are fellowships. And look what it says in verse 22. They're confirming the souls of the disciples, all Gentiles. Remarkable. They're confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Paul is talking to them. As he gets back to Antioch and Iconium, there was a mingling of Jews. There had been a synagogue there. But when he's in Derby and Lystra, he's going back, he's confirming these are all Gentiles. And they're trying to say to him, all right, now you need, yeah, yeah, God loves you. He's in charge, but there's going to be trouble. Through tribulation, you're going to find yourself entering into the kingdom of God. Certainly that was Paul's story. That was all the apostles, obviously, but Judas. Uh, that was their testimony. He, he's confirming them, affirming, assuring, strengthening them, and then exhorting them, challenging them to move forward. And their moving forward is to be to continue in the faith. Now, the remarkable thing is when he writes to the church at, at, at Galatia, which is up there again, he says, I'm, I'm amazed that you're so soon removed from the gospel that I taught you unto another gospel, which is really not another gospel, heteros, and it's not another uh, of a different kind. They, they use the name Jesus, but they're saying something else. It's not the gospel we preach. So whether an apostle or an angel from heaven preaches another gospel that doesn't agree with the one we preach, let him be anathema, eternally damned. Paul's pretty serious about this. He's pretty serious about this whole thing. So he's, they're c- telling them to continue in the faith. Look, what's the Holy Spirit telling us? You look at the news. No, we don't even watch the news anymore. You know, you look at what's going on in the world we're in. You look at the struggles there are. You look at the difficulties. You look at, you know, and you scratch your head. Who's telling us the truth? Who's not telling us the truth? Who's got cred? Who doesn't got cred? Who really knows? Who doesn't? Who's deceiving? Who's affirming? Who's doing, you know. And and in the middle of all this, the same exhortation has to be there to that, that you would continue in the faith. You can count on that. Everything else, maybe you're not sure around you, and nobody can be an expert. But one thing you can know for sure is you can depend on Jesus Christ and the gospel, and our Lord and Savior is coming soon to take his bride across the threshold and carry her home. So that that's one thing we can hold on to. Everybody, Everything else may be shaking and disintegrating around us, And this is the Roman world, where those kind of things easily took place. They say that they should continue in the faith. And and you have to realize, we, Paul includes himself, must, through much tribulation, tribulum in the Latin is where the threshing sled was drug over the grain to separate the wheat from the chaff. God allows tribulation. We must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. You know, uh, it's interesting. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that as they came in the area of Ephesus, he said, you know, Silas and I, we despaired of life itself. This is the great apostle. We despaired of life itself. He didn't say we thought about suicide. That's wrong. But he did say, we despaired of life itself. We said, Lord, any day you want to take us, that's great. 
I've been to the third heaven. I want to come back. You know, it was so hard and so difficult. They despaired of life itself. And then, of course, he'll go on and he'll say, for we know that this present affliction worketh for us a far more an eternal exceeding weight of glory. He says, while we look again, not at the things that are seen, but we look scopio the things that are not seen. Things that are seen, temporary. But we want to build our whole lives there. The things that are not seen are eternal. So he says, and we know, even if this tabernacle, this house is dissolved, we have a home, a tabernacle in the heaven made without human hands, eternal in the heaven. So, you know, Paul understands, you know, this is not our home. This ain't heaven. That's a great bumper sticker, by the way. This ain't heaven. It takes away the confusion right away. Sometimes we're surprised at what goes on. This ain't heaven. So that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church, so there's already churches, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believe. So this is a remarkable passage. They come back through these areas. These churches are new. There's hardly any time left. It says they ordained elders. It wouldn't be the same way we understand ordination today. They appointed elders. You know, as these churches are forming, it's obvious to the people that are gathering, maybe who the leaders were, maybe some of them in Pisidian, had, they had been in Pentecost in chapter 2 of Acts. Some of them may have had religious backgrounds. Some of them may have been Jews that were converted. But as Paul goes through with Barnabas, in each city they stop and they dialogue, they work with people, they appoint elders. Probably not ordained the way we think of it, but they appointed elders. And then it says they commit the church to the Lord in whom they believe. Just that's so remarkable. These are baby Christians, baby churches. And here are these apostles. There's prayer and fasting. They don't do it in the flesh. You know, you can hear Paul and Barnabas must be sitting there. What about this guy, uh, Jose, over here? Yeah, I felt the same thing today. We should really think about him. You know, they probably worked through in a conversation, and then they set aside certain men to be elders in those fellowships, which probably were small. And then it says they just committed them. They commended them to the Lord on whom they had believed. That's how Paul and, and Barnabas left. They were commended to the Lord by the church there at Antioch. And after they had passed through Pisidia, then they came to Pamphylia. Now that's a hundred miles. So they're, they're going from Pisidia up here, down here to Pamphylia, which is in that area, down by the, the coast again, from Pisidia down here to Pamphylia, um, about a hundred miles, probably where Paul had contracted malaria, if that's in fact what was troubling him and his eyesight and so forth. It says, They came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word at Perga, which they hadn't done on the way in, so on the way out they're doing that, then they went to Athaliah. Athaliah, you can see it down there, right where the his travels come together. That's where the port for Perga is, 10 miles south at Athaliah. They went to Athaliah, it says, and from there, they sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. So now they're going to sail. But on the way out, see, they hit Cyprus, and then they went up to the continent. On the way back, they sailed directly from Athaliah, from Perga to Antioch. It's over 300 miles. And again, this is not, you know... The Disney Cruise. This this is you you boarded passage on a freighter. That's all there were. There were freighters and warships where the Romans had destroyed piracy on the Mediterranean. They owned it. They took it over, and these huge grain ships would travel. Again, they said sometimes a thousand people were sleeping outside on the deck. You had to have your own supplies at ten if you wanted your own covering and so forth. So imagine traveling 300 miles, depending on the prevalent winds and if they're having to row, how fast that journey may be. 
but I'm sure him and Barnabas sat and talked. Barnabas probably saying here, let me, this lump is still bleeding up here. Let me, you know, just, you can imagine the, their conversation and, you know, Paul saying, if they call me lumpy when I get back there. And he probably said, well, that's better than mercury, you know. So 300 miles sailing together. Just try to imagine coming back to Antioch. Listen, where they had been recommended or committed to the grace of God. <laughs> Paul's going to come back really looking like he was committed to the grace of God. You know, they, they go to, you know, tell, and they're going to tell the church, yeah, we went here and there was this sorcerer. Oh, yeah, we went here and they chased us. Yeah, we went here and we got stoned. Yeah, we went here, you know. But they had been committed to the grace of God, it says, for the work which they had fulfilled. Interesting. And when they were come and gathered with the church together there, they had been away for over a year. They had traveled over 600 miles by land and over 600 miles by sea. So they've been away for a little over a year, and they've traveled over 1,200 miles with the things that you and I take for granted. They were come, they gathered the church together, and then they rehearsed for them all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Remarkable. The church is gathered there in Antioch where there were synagogues, but largely Jewish uh, parts in the church. But no doubt the Gentiles were the larger part. And he says the Lord had opened uh, the door, given us an open door to the Gentile world he would write to the Corinthians and say, For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. He just said, Through much tribulation you enter the kingdom. He said, There's an open door with many adversaries, he says there. He tells us in Second Corinthians, uh, let me get my verse. computer knows. 2 Corinthians 12. Oh, wrong. That's why I can't find it. It's 2.12. 70-year-old eyes. Second Corinthians 2, verse 12 says, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened unto me, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother, and so forth. So there's an open door there as well. And he says in that, though, he found no rest. And uh, in Colossians, then he says this in chapter 4, um, must be verse 12. Three, for with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. If Paul needed an open door, you and I need an open door. And he says we should pray that there's an open door. You should ask your friends, hey, I'm witnessing to my mom this week, or I'm witnessing to this people, or I'm going to get a chance to share at this funeral, or I'm going to get a chance to do this, or I'm going to get to do the toast at the wedding, or I'm going to get to say grace. You know, they're going to let the nuts say grace this year. So, you know, in all of those things, pray if there's an open door to share the mystery of the gospel. Yeah, there can be adversaries. Paul said that here. And look, remarkable above all of that is Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia, you know, I've set before you an open door that no man can shut. Because you've kept my word, you have a little strength from the Spirit, which is, a, which is a, an affirmation, he's complimenting them, and you haven't denied my name. You, you've held to my passion, this, you've held me center, the gospel, what I've endured, the word of my endurance is at the center of what you do. And you have a little strength and you've kept my word. And he says, because of that, there's an open door. I think of the open door the Lord has set in front of us. 
you know, with four Harvest Crusades in Philadelphia and thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ with the several thousand churches that we work with and the friends we have now with other churches, with the churches that have spun off of here, with the radio and the app and the ministry now all over the country and, and other places, God has really given us an open door. And, and for everybody in this church, there's somewhere to give, there's somewhere to serve, there's somewhere to represent Christ. There's an open door. And Paul now and Barnabas come back and they rehearse in front of the church. The church must be excited. They haven't seen him in a year. Paul looks a little knot-headed there, but he, they, they say they, they rehearsed all that the Lord had done, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Remarkable. And there they abode a long time, it seems like from the fall of um, 57 to the spring of, uh, fall of 51, spring of 52, they're there over six months. They abode a long time there with the disciples. Certain men then, which came down from Judea, taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. So we come to chapter 15. This is incalculable value for you and I today, for the church through the centuries. Because now these Jews, Pharisees, and it says they believed. But they believed that Christianity, they believed course Jesus was their Messiah and they believe he just fulfilled Old Testament and he certainly did but they believe you ought to keep the law of Moses you still had to be circumcised because in their mind circumcision was part of a covenant there were older other ancient cultures older than Judaism that circumcised in different ways but the Jews it was specific to them on the eighth day which was in vitamin K is formed in your system and you can coagulate interesting but on the eighth day, they were circumcised, and it was they entered into the covenant God had made with Abraham. So it's huge for them, covenantally. And they're telling, oh, yeah, well, the, the, these Gentiles are coming in now. They think they're just going to prance around here and eat Italian sausage and do whatever. They, no, no. No, they're going to they're gonna come in. They're going to have to keep the law of Moses like the rest of us. They're going to have the, observe the feast days. They're going to have to be circumcised. They're going to have to do all this which certainly wouldn't be good news in Antioch there in Syria where they came. They came down from Jerusalem even though it was north. And the church is still filled with this problem today. There are liberals in the church today and there are legalists. The Pharisees were the liberals. The Pharisees were the legalists. There are those the liberals take away from the word of God and the legalists add to the word of God. And they give you great options. You can either backslide or frontslide. You know, you can backslide back into sin and, and behavior that you indulged in before you were a believer, and you shouldn't do that. Or you can frontslide. Your pride can make you so puffed up, you can look down at other believers. And here's where the line's going to be drawn in this chapter. This is the first great conference in Jerusalem where the apostles are there and the church is there and they're hearing what's happening in the Gentile world and it's remarkable that it's at Jerusalem because that's the hub and they're going to want to hear from Peter and from James the Lord's half-brother and 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 the apostles that are there in Galatians Paul said John was there as well and they have to make a decision okay you know liberality in regards to living carnally is wrong uh, legalism in regards to trying to provide your own righteousness is wrong. And when people are trying to take the righteousness that Jesus Christ has provided freely and mess with that and put it under standards that God hasn't put it under, they are tampering with the holiest thing in time and eternity and heaven and earth the work of God's dear Son that was slain from the foundation of the world. So this chapter has value through church history and down to us this evening that is immeasurable. And because it's 10 of 9, we're really not going to measure it tonight, but we'll, we'll look at it. 
Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Well, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. And you would think Gentiles would say, No, thanks. You know, Paul's going to have to write to the Galatians and say, I can't believe you guys fell into this. Having begun in the spirit, you're not going to be made perfect in the flesh because they convinced the Galatians up in this Pisidian area that they needed to be circumcised. So they come down with this message. When, therefore, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined, those in Antioch, that Paul and Barnabas and certain others from the church in Antioch should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So it's great, Dr. Luke here has to use two words to describe the argument. He says there was no small dissension and disputation. Dissension is the division that it caused. The disputation is they weren't talking real nice to each other. That's the argument. And he said it wasn't a small one, which means it was a big one. There was no small dissension and disputation with them, then they, the church at Antioch, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and the elders about this question. Do Gentiles have to keep the law? Do they have to be circumcised? And being brought on their way by the church, this is interesting, we, we wonder how far the church went with them. They passed through Phoenice, which is Tyre and Sidon, and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. So as they go through the area of Tyre and Sidon, and then come down, it's not on this map, they come down into Samaria. Remember, the, the, the Jews didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans, but then there was revival there in Samaria, and Peter and John went up to see what was going on. The Samaritans were filled with the Spirit. They had to come back and tell the church at Jerusalem, yeah, the Samaritans are getting saved. So as, as they return to Jerusalem to hash this out, they go through the area of Tyre and Sidon, where there are Gentile churches, Gentile believers, and they're rejoicing to hear that the gospel's going into the Gentile world. They go to Samaria, which had your whole life you were given a hard time by the Jews, and they're rejoicing to hear, yes, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is accepting the Gentiles. He says it was great joy when they heard this, and when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But, and when you're serving Christ and things are going great, there's always a but. But they rose up, there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, notice this, which believed. So they're misbelievers, not disbelievers. You and I know them. There are people that are not disbelievers, but they're misbelievers. So these are certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and commanded them to keep the law of Moses. Now, the interesting thing is, these are Pharisees. Paul says he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had a reputation in Jerusalem. You know, he had been slaughtering the church, and then he gets saved, and it took a while before the apostles in Jerusalem accepted him, and he's been accepted by them now. Barnabas was a Levite from Jerusalem. And so as they come talking about what God's doing to the Gentiles, certain of the Pharisees, which no doubt they knew Saul of Tarsus, get in this argument and say, what are you talking about? They've they got to be circumcised. They've got to keep the law of Moses. Paul will tell us this in Galatians. He says, 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem, that's after he was there the first time, then he goes um, back to Tarsus and so forth and to Antioch. Fourteen years later, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I had preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation 
lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately sneakily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us again into bondage. And he says, you know, Titus was exhibit one. Here's a guy who believes and he's not circumcised and he knows Christ. He said, we brought him with. So evidently he's one of the ones who came with. It says others had come from Antioch. And he said, they wanted to bring us into bondage to whom we gave place by subjection. No, not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you, saying to the Galatians. But of these who seem to be somewhat, now it seems he's talking about anybody in the crowd who seemed to have a reputation, the Judaizers or the rest of the apostles, but of these who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it makes no difference to me, God accepts no man's person, for they who seemed to be somewhat in the conference added nothing to me, but contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was committed unto Peter, for he had wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me towards the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, which means the church in Jerusalem endorsed them. So you have Peter, James, John, and Paul out of the 27 New Testament books. They wrote 23 of them, those four guys. So they are a, a, a real force in the church at this point in time. And it says, they gave us the right hand of fellowship relative to the truth that they had preached among the Gentiles that we should go unto the heathen and they should go to the circumcision, the Jews. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I was also more than willing to do, which we'll get back to if the Lord tarries next week in chapter 15 as they come to a decision about what they should do, which sets the course of church history, and it's why you and I are here this evening. And it's just so important for us to to take hold as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. You know, we get saved, and our life does change. But it, it changes from the conversion. It doesn't change for the conversion. Our life doesn't change so we can be converted. When we're goody-two-shoes enough, God will say, okay, come on in. That's not the deal. It's real salvation produces fruit. It produces good work. When somebody names the name of Christ, they say, let them depart from iniquity. I'm a believer. Jesus is my Lord. He's not just my Savior. He is that. But I wanted more than fire assurance. Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. And there should be evidence of that in our lives. doesn't mean we're perfect. doesn't mean we never make a mistake. But for you and I, holiness is a direction. What direction are we moving in? Is our life being more and more sanctified, set aside for God's things? It's not perfect. In the ages to come, we're still going to be learning about his grace and his glory and so forth, his mercy. But now we get converted. We get saved. I get saved. My old friends kind of knew something was different. I wasn't doing the same things with them. Took a little bit of a beating, backslid for a couple months, which got me nowhere but miserable. You know, uh, there should be a difference. My parents got saved because they said, we saw the difference. You know, you went from this to that. You went, you know, yoga and meditation and vegetarian and astral planes. And then you were talking about Jesus. We thought only flying saucers are left after this. You know, where are you going? But, you know, she said, but my mom said, I watched you when you got saved and started talking about Jesus. You ate meat again. I've been a vegetarian for a number of years. And everybody told me, if you just start to eat meat again, you're going to get sick. But I thought, eh. I just got saved. I'm going to say grace. I had a couple of hot dogs and a ham sandwich. I was fine. 
But she said, we watched your life change. And you had gone through all these other different things. And you held on to this Jesus thing. And we watched you. Because there are people that are never going to read a Bible. They're going to read you. We watched you. And we saw this thing didn't pass. It didn't change. And then finally we started the Bible study at Arthur's. I was on the West Coast for a while. came back. And, um, and then my mom, who was Lutheran, was never so Lutheran as when I got saved. All of a sudden, she was really Lutheran. My dad, who was Catholic, got more Catholic when I got saved, you know, because uh, I was at home talking about Jesus, singing songs, and it was driving them crazy. So finally, they came up to Arthur's Catering. Our fellowship was in a catering hall, which they just could not comprehend. Right? They came up to the catering hall. And they see this lady, because my mom's telling you, you need to go to the church. You need to go to Gloria Day. You need to go to these Lutheran churches. You need to go back to your roots. You need to so they, they came up to the church. They didn't know what to do with this. We were all young, and, you know, this is 40 years ago. I was young then. And, and uh, my mom sees this old German friend of hers, we talk German to each other, and just Eleanor Myers, who came here for years, and she said, what are you doing here? To Eleanor Myers. And Eleanor Myers said, Well, you used to go to Gloria Day, but we came here one time and heard the word. We've been coming here ever since. And my mom said, Well, that's Joey. She said, Because she knew me when I was this big. They they owned a butcher shop over on Rising Sun Avenue in Longcrest where I grew up, you know. So but but that kind of blew in my mom's face. That that was the end about bragging about Lutherans, because here's one of our favorite Lutheran people sitting there and you know. And, and they watched. They watched. It was hard to talk to them because they were my parents. They had seen me do all the screwy things in the world. But they watched. They saw the longevity. My mom said, I knew something really changed. Then finally, in, in the late 80s, they went to Israel. I'd have begged them every year to go to Israel. No, no, no. Finally, one year, they signed up. I said, I'm not saying nothing. Don't chase them away. Mom and Dad come to Israel. We're baptizing in the River Jordan. Here comes my mom out of the ladies' room with her bathing suit and a T-shirt on and gets in line to get baptized. And she comes out and stands next to me in the Jordan River. And I said, Mom, how can I pray for you? And she breaks down and sobs and says, I want to be close to the Lord. I just feel so far away. I said, well, you need to pray this prayer with me. And I led my mom in the sinner's prayer, standing in the Jordan River, and baptized her. And she came up, she came up and threw her arms around me, told me she loved me. She hadn't done that in years, in years. And everybody from church was blubbering and crying like a bunch of babies, of course, they were watching. But you know, but you think that it wasn't so much what I said; it's it it, it could be watched, it was demonstrated, and that's it's not legalism, you know. When when we come to Christ, we should be set free from those old things. I I have like these knucklehead young pastors now who think I'm a legalist because I don't drink. Because I don't do this, don't that. And I say, you don't understand. I stopped drinking when I got saved. I didn't get saved so I could start drinking. When I got saved, I stopped drugging. I stopped drinking. I stopped doing all that stuff. And you're telling me I'm a Pharisee? I just don't want to go back into that world. I'm, a, I'm free now. I have liberty. That was bondage for me. You think you're, you think you're cool because you drink? You want to be cool? Let's stand and pray. I'm just so glad to be free of that, you know. There's enough stuff that still pulls on me. I'm glad to be free of that. And I'm not condemning anybody. You know, you, you have a glass of wine at home. That's between you and Jesus, but it's wrong for me. And uh may not be sin for you. It would be for me. But I'm not a Pharisee. I like rock and roll. And conspiracies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's bow our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I know you've overheard. We thank you for the book of Acts, Lord. Just we look through this with remarkable interest because it's so human, Lord, at every turn. This it's filled with bruises and lumps and rejoicing and conversion and 
discipleship and Lord all things that are so important to us Lord in our walks Lord would you let us learn the lessons you have for for each of us here individually as we look into these things and Lord we're kind of living in the book of Acts the the world around us is as crazy as the Roman and Greek world was then there's all kinds of other gods around us in all kinds of directions there's people that love to throw stones at us Lord we want to share your love with this lost world We want to share your love, Lord Jesus, with this broken and lost world. Uh, Just think of John telling us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. So, Lord, let us love this world the way you do. It's so easy for us, Lord, to get frustrated and just feel like we're done with it, just blow the trumpet, get us out of here. But, Lord, you're not done. There's another little girl that needs to get saved. There's another grandma, another sister, another brother, another harlot, another drug pusher, another alcoholic. That you love and died for. It's going to stand around your throne forever. So do the work, Lord. And do it through us when when we're in the the right place, Father, and and you would graciously do that. Hear our hearts as we lift our voices now, Lord, whatever this is. Just let it be a prayer that we all sing together, Lord. We look to you and we lift it to you, Lord Jesus. We thank you and we pray in your name. Amen.